found in Luke chapter 10. If any of you don't have a Bible or if you have a friend or someone who doesn't have one, you're welcome to take one of ours. We have several on the cart over here. Take one and give it away to whomever might need one. So this morning we're reading a, a scripture that's very well known by those of us in the church. But I'm going to invite you to listen. That was part of the sermon plan. Daniel did it a little early. <laughs> I've been doing this for eight years. At some point that was my It never happened. I think about it every It's a, it's a scripture that we're familiar with. It's known as the Good Samaritan. The parable of the Good Samaritan is found in Luke chapter 10. We're going to be looking at verses 25 through 37. I invite us to listen with fresh ears this morning. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law, he replied. How do you read it? He answered, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, with all your strength and with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. You have answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this and you will live. But he wanted to justify himself, so he asked Jesus, And who is my neighbor? In reply, Jesus said, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he fell into the hands of robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going, going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too a Levite, when he came to the place and he saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. Jesus told him, go and do likewise. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of God for the people of God. So whenever I was in college, I had a dual major. I majored in both history and in English. You can call me a nerd later. It's okay. <laughs> My English degree, it was, had an emphasis in literature because I love literature. And one of my very favorite literature classes I took in college, it was, it was a class called the Literary South. And it was in this class that we read through a lot of short stories and novels that emerged from the southern half of the United States from the colonial days all the way to the present time of the class. And so we, of course, read all the greats. We, we read the people like Edgar Allan Poe and Mark Twain and William Faulkner. But you see, I had read all of those authors before. And so what intrigued me about the class was that I was actually introduced to some new writers, men and women I had never heard of. And then I got to read some of the stories that I'd never heard of either. So I, I got to meet people like, like Kate Chopin and Catherine Ann Porter and then Eudora Welty and Ralph Ellison. They, they all piqued my interest into who we are as Southerners. But you see, there was one author that resonated with my soul above all the rest of them from this class. It's a woman by the name of Flannery O'Connor. Yep. <laughs> you see, her characters were my people. These were people I knew in my daily life from Muleshoe. Seriously. Her, her stories, they, they came alive because they were my stories. 
Anne O'Connor, like all the great storytellers that are out there, she, she was able to connect with me, her reader, on an intimate level. She, she allowed me to, to transcend beyond who I was in the here and now in my life. And she was able to take me into a new world, a world of greater lessons and points of view that I had never concerted, considered before in my entire life. And you see, that's what all stories should do, church. They, they take us from where we are with all of our flaws and all of our strengths, even our prejudices. And yes, church, we all have prejudices. We have to recognize that. They, they take us with all of our beliefs and, and they challenge us to the way, all the way down to the very essence of what makes us who we are as a person. And the best stories, are, they're not just told for entertainment value, but they most certainly better entertain us. The best stories, they, they branch out into all parts of who we are as a person. And then they capture a hold of us. And then when they leave us, they don't give us all the answers. They, they don't tie up all the loose ends and everyone goes home with a happily ever after ending. That's not the best story. They leave us with a worldview different. They leave us looking at ourselves different. Now, there's something I hope that we church people never forget. And that is that our faith, it's not just a bunch of rules and regulations. Our, our faith is founded on a story. The Bible. The, the Bible is this entire library of books where, that tells us God's story. It, it tells us God's story of his desiring a relationship with his greatest creation, us, people, and if we fail to capture that story, if we fail to, to take that story to the people, then we have failed to understand who God actually is. And you see, Jesus, he was really smart. He knew that about us. He knew that about God. And that's why Jesus is a master storyteller. He immersed himself in the culture, the culture of the people that were there, and he took the time that they were actually living in. He, he took everything he knew about these people. And he wove these, these magnificent stories. Stories of judgment and grace and law, love and faith. And so today we call these stories parables, which they are. But you see, there's so much more than that. Church, these are our stories these are our family stories. And they're the very essence of what Jesus was teaching us. And so over the next several weeks, you and I, we're going to go back to our family stories. I know we've all heard them before, right? How many of us have heard the tale of the Good Samaritan? Amen? We all know this story, don't we? We're going to know most of these stories, but you know what? We're going to do this a little bit differently this time. We're, we're going to look at these stories from a different perspective, a different point of view. So, so today we're going to all take off our, our 21st century Western eyes. We're going to take them out and lay them to the side. And we're going to pick up 1st century Middle Eastern eyes. And we're going to start looking at the parables of Jesus from the eyes of someone in the Middle East of the first century. So today's story, it actually begins with a question. It, it's a question that was asked out of selfish ambition, not because the person was really all that interested. He, he said, hey, Jesus, I got a question for you. What do I have to do to inherit eternal life? And the question makes absolutely no sense, church, if you think about it. 
Because after all, what can any single one of us in this room do to inherit anything? And the answer is nothing. When you are born or adopted into a family, all of their stuff becomes your stuff, doesn't it? And it comes to you once those people are dead, doesn't it? That's how inheritance works. Somebody dies and gives you all of their junk. <laughs> At least that's what's going to happen with me, I promise. You ought to see my dad's garage. It's horrible. But anyway, inheritance, it, it's not a salary that we get to earn by working hard. It's not something that we are guaranteed we're going to get. Instead, it's this gift that has been bequeathed out of love from one person to somebody else. Now, regardless of how flawed this question is, it, it does lead the people, lead Jesus' audience into this bigger question of who is my neighbor. Or more specifically, in this case, the lawyer is asking Jesus, who do you teach is my neighbor? Is it my family, Jesus? Is it my friends? Is it my fellow countrymen, my fellow Americans? Is it the strangers I meet on the street? Who exactly is it, Jesus? Who do you teach is my neighbor? And that's when Jesus, the master storyteller, begins. He begins with this unnamed man who just happens to be traveling down the road from Jerusalem all the way down to Jericho. And yes, it is a downward slope. Now, if you've never been on this road, you, you have to understand that this road is extremely narrow. You, you really can't, in most places, walk side by side with someone. It's a single-file road. And along the way, there's all these places where people can hide, and they can jump out, and they can, they can take advantage of you. They can steal from you. They can beat you. And you see, back in Jesus' day, this road was called the Way of Blood. A lot of people were attacked while traveling this pathway. And so in the story, this first person comes along after the man was beaten and left for dead. He, he's a priest. And you see, the, the priests were the highest class of men who served there in the temple of Jerusalem. And, and therefore, they were considered to be very well respected by the people. They, they were prestigious men. All across the nation, priests mattered. And most likely, you see, he had been serving to his two weeks at the temple and he was headed home. He was ready to get home to there in Jericho with his family. Priests were also, were also extremely wealthy. So he was not just walking along this path. He was riding his donkey. So he easily could have dismounted, got the man and picked him up and put him on his donkey and taken him on into Jericho, couldn't he? But you see, there's a problem with that. The man lying in the road is completely knocked out. He, he's not talking to anybody now, here's the rules, folks. If the, law, if the man is a law-abiding Jew, the priest is absolutely required to help him. He has to. There's no other option out there. But he can't ask him because the, the guy's out. There's no way to speak to this man. The, the priest, he, he has no way of knowing whether he's a law-abiding Jew or if he's even a Jew at all. He could be an Egyptian, couldn't he? Or maybe he could be a Samaritan. Now, if he's a Jew, the priest most certainly would have stopped and helped him. But he doesn't know. So things have got a little bit more gray now, church. Here's the thing. If this man is dead or if he dies along the way, the priest automatically becomes unclean. And that means he's got to go all the way back up to Jerusalem 
And he has to endure this whole week-long process of becoming ceremonial, ceremonially pure again. Until he is, he can't do what he needs to do. And you see, you don't just go back to Jerusalem and begin the ritual on the first day you get there. It takes time, people. It takes time to contact the right folks and to set everything up. And you have to make all of these appointments, you see. And then once the appointments are set, you just hope that everyone's going to show up and do what they're supposed to do. And in the meantime, in the meantime, since the priest is completely unclean, then he cannot eat his fair share of the food that comes from the temple for himself every day. And besides that, all the temple tax that gets paid, guess what? He gets a share of the temple tax because that's what his income is. He's going to live off of this. As long as he's unclean, he gets none of that, folks. Neither does his family. His family needs to eat and they have to have the money to pay the bills. And so if he becomes unclean, nobody gets any money. And besides that, here's something you have to understand. He's wearing these robes, and these robes are very expensive. And you see, the, if, the, if they become unclean, there's one option and one option only. You have to destroy the robe. So he has to buy a brand new wardrobe after this guy's dead all over him, and he doesn't want to do that because he doesn't even have an income to buy it. And so we don't even know if this guy's a Jew. The risks outweigh ceremonial purity. So the priest, he literally, it's such a narrow road, he, he literally has the donkey step over this dying man on the road so that he can remain pure. The, the next man that comes along, he, he's a man who's known as a Levite. Now, now Levites, they're kind of like associate pastors. They're, they're assistants to the priests. He most likely knew the priest was on the road ahead of him. Levites knew what the priests were doing. And so he already knew that this guy had been encountered by a priest and that the, he had been passed over. And so he, as an assistant, should, should a Levite really do something the priest wouldn't do? I mean, after all, Levites aren't nearly as well educated as the priests were. The, the, the priest knows the law much better than the Levite does. So, so why in the world would the Levite do something the priest wouldn't do? And besides, he's also going home to Jericho. He wants to go see his family. He's tired and that priest, Jericho's not that big of a town, folks. That, that priest is going to know. He's going to know that the Levite picked up this man on the way home. And guess what? If he shows up with the same man on his donkey that the priest overlooked, well, that's insulting the priest. And, and you know what? His job is going to be on the line. The priest gets insulted and his pride gets in the way. He's fired. The man's not worth the hassle. Now, church, it's the next person that arrives on the scene that reveals exactly how much of a master storyteller Jesus actually is. You see, this, this character, he, he throws the audience that listening to what Jesus says. He throws them for a loop because, you see, in, in a traditional story like this, there, there's a hierarchy, isn't there? there? There's the greatest to the least and so the story has to go priest to Levite and then Levite to Jewish layperson. That's the way it has to go. So like in our Methodist world, the way it works is there's the bishop who's the greatest and then there's the district superintendent and then there's the mere pastor who happens to be in a local church, right? That's the way the hierarchy is set up. But that's not what Jesus does. Priest to Levite. Levite 
to Samaritan. And so in our world, that would be like going bishop to DS and DS to a Muslim imam. You see the change here. The hero of Jesus' story is not a Jewish layman like he should have been. It's a hated outsider. It's a person who has caused a great deal of trouble for our people across the globe. It's a person who has, who has killed and maimed and destroyed and done everything he can to destroy the faith that we have, the, the, the faith that we know and believe every day of our life. This man has been interfering in our world for far too long and he has no business coming around here and acting like this. But unlike the priest and the Levite, this enemy of the Jewish people, he's moved to compassion. He looks at the world he's currently living in and he sees, he sees there's something wrong with it. And he does his level best to fix it. He gets off of his donkey and he kneels next to this naked, dying man. And he wraps bandages around the wounds. And he, he pours the only medicine that he knows to use, oil and wine, desperately with all he is to mend the brokenness on the road. And then he takes that injured man onto his own ride. And while he rides along, the Samaritan of all people, he leads this beast of burden into Jericho. Now you see the Samaritan, he is literally risking his life to save another man here. Because you see, Samaritans are not welcome in Jewish cities. Ever. Oh sure, he could have easily dropped him right there at the city gate and left him there, but he didn't. He went ahead and made his way into this enemy territory, deep into enemy territory. And we have to remember, in the first century, community vengeance is a thing. And, and what community vengeance means is that it allowed the community people around you to rise up against the enemy, and they could kill him. That's okay. They could kill this Samaritan for being the enemy. Even if he is trying to save a Jewish man's life, it doesn't matter. And then not only that, he, he actually takes him into this hotel and he spends the night deep in enemy territory, caring for someone else, caring for someone he should have just left on the road to die of his own stupidity. And you see, compassion, it didn't even stop there. The next morning, this, this Samaritan gets up and he pulls out of his pocket two days' wages, folks. Two days' worth of pay. And he pays for the man to stay there in the inn. Maybe a week, hopefully two. And he promises the innkeeper, when I get back, I will pay you whatever you tell me I have to pay you. Knowing full well that this Jewish innkeeper is going to stick it to this Samaritan for more than what he was worth. He pays the bill and the Samaritan, he still got to leave town. Jericho's a small town, and he's been in Motel 8. <coughs> small town Muleshoe, we know who's been staying in Motel 8. I guarantee you that. 
So there's a good chance there's a, there's a mob out there. There's a mob of good Jewish men who are going to take this man down and show him what it means for a Samaritan to enter into enemy territory. But we don't know, do we, church? We don't know what happens to this good Samaritan after this takes place. And so we have these Middle Eastern eyes that we can now see exactly how incredible this story from Jesus to us is. The, the Samaritan, he, he shows us, church, what unexpected love looks like. He shows us how costly love, true love, actually is. And that brings us back to the lawyer's question. Who is my neighbor? What do you think, Jesus asked him. Which one of these three was a neighbor to the man who encountered the thieves? Jesus never even answers, does he? You see, the lawyer's question isn't answered because instead Jesus challenges him. But far more important than that, church, Jesus is challenging us today. He wants us to actually reflect on the bigger question here. And that is this. To whom must I become a neighbor? And the answer to that is, of course... To anyone in need. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, may the peace and grace of Jesus rest on your hearts. Amen.